Thank you so much. Hello, holy friends. Thank you so much for being here. We're delighted to, uh, to be with you all. We know others are trickling into the Zoom and joining on the live stream. And thank you for joining us on the recording side. It is, uh, we're here with a great scholar and a very important topic today. Um, uh, very pressing, pressing issues and fascinating issues. And uh, Dr. Mark Dollinger has, uh, is, has been no stranger to us as a scholar and, and community leader and someone that we uh, have enjoyed multiple times to, to learn with. Um, so just a brief version of, of our bio here. Professor Mark Dollinger holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco State University. He has served as research fellow at Princeton University Center for the Study of Religion, as well as the Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow and Lecturer in the Humanities at Bryn Mawr College, where he coordinated the program in Jewish Studies. Professor Dollinger is author of four scholarly books in American Jewish history, most recently Black Power Jewish Politics, Reinventing the Alliance in the 1960s. He has published entries in the Encyclopedia Judaica, the Encyclopedia of Antisemitism, and the Encyclopedia of African American Education. His next project, The Tale of Two Campuses, Jews and Identity Politics in the Golden State, traces his experience as a Jewish professor at both right-wing and left-wing universities. Dr. Dollinger is a past president of both the Jewish Community High School of the Bay and Brandeis Hillel Day School. He serves on the boards of the Jewish Community Federation and URJ Camp Newman. He sat on the California Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, was named Volunteer of the Year by the San Francisco Jewish Community Federation, and was awarded the San Francisco JCRC's Courageous Leader Award. Professor Dollinger has spoken about his research on CNN's Don Lemon tonight, as well as the CNN podcast, Silence is Not an Option, the NFL Network, ESPN, we got to hear about that, and Germany's National Public Radio. Uh, just for fun, Dr. Dollinger helped actress Helen Hunt learn about her Jewish roots. <laughs> so um, we're very happy to have you here, Professor Dollinger, Eddie Chavez Calderon and I, and the whole Erdetetic team have been excited to welcome you back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Eddie. Just honored uh, and thrilled to get to contribute. Let me uh, share my screen so we can get started. Okay, give me a thumbs up if you can see the screen and we're all good. Excellent. All right. In um, May 2020, the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police sparked a national reckoning on race with the level of public interest we hadn't seen since the 1960s. When we look at the protests that followed, their size, the number of white allies, the cities and towns across the country, the importance of social media as a tool to organize, we can make a case that what's been going on in the United States the last few years is actually bigger than the 1960s. Um, yet, in some important ways, today's call for racial equality is different. It's different from Reconstruction, and it's different from the 1960s. Um, white Americans used to define races, oh, sorry, white Americans' very definition of racism has changed. I'll date myself. When I was growing up in the 1970s, you were a racist if you supported Jim Crow or if you were a member of the KKK. Now, um, it means being anti-racist. It used to mean treating someone differently because of the color of their skin. But now we define um, anti-racism as enjoying the benefits of a social system that's privileging whites at the expense of people of color. So today we're gonna to take a deep dive into an often uncomfortable topic, which is the history of American Jews, uh, race and racism. So, um, I'm gonna to try to bridge the gap between um, the racial reckoning, um, which has been going on the last few years, and probably many of our own understandings if we grew up in the organized Jewish community um, about um, what all this means. Um, so racism, I assume that all of you have already heard and know the story of American Jewish success, of our social mobility, of achieving the American dream, and I have good news. The good news is it's all true. America has offered us an extraordinary, if even exceptional experience. American Jews worked hard. They pressed their children to get an education. They sacrificed for a better future. They achieved extraordinary success in business, law, medicine, name the field. 
Jews did pull ourselves up from our bootstraps to achieve the American dream. And, and here's the big and for today, Jews also achieved success, especially in the years after World War II because of our privileged racial status. And even before World War II, racism created a system of white supremacy where those who were considered white enjoyed VIP status. Whites enjoyed better and easier access to education, to healthcare, to the judicial system, to housing. And this is a powerful irony for us to hold. Jews who ourselves suffer from anti-Semitism, at least white Jews I'm referring to now, also benefit from white supremacy. Both are possible at the same time. We're gonna be investigating three different expressions of racism in American Jewish history. Uh, the first are gonna be times when American Jews actually embraced racist thoughts. Good news, fortunately, these will be the fewest examples. But we're also gonna look at times when American Jews were complicit in racism. And these are times when Jews remained silent to the racism around them. It happened in history more than we'd like. Of course, it still challenges us today. But really, I think the deepest part of today is we're gonna to look at times when American Jews benefit from racism, whether we were trying to or not. And this turns to, out to be the most important because with this, all we have to do is exist, simply exist in order to be part of a system of racial supremacy. I'm gonna be focus, focusing on white Jews today. Um, if you were fortunate pre-COVID to come from one of the talks when I came to Arizona, we, we did more on, on what whiteness was. Um, we're not going to debate that now. I'm just going to say kind of like if you're presenting like I am today, um, then, then you're going to be um, termed white and, uh, and we're going to talk about that. And that's because the experience of Black Jews and other Jews of color are different. Um, it isn't the focus of today's talk, but it's something we all, especially those of us in the white Jewish community, need to learn about and know. So I encourage you to read up. There's so many good articles and op-eds and publications available by many um, Jews of color uh, in our community. Um, but from now, we're gonna talk about white European American Jews and how they experienced history. Um, good morning, good afternoon. Um, great to be back. Our historical question, for those of you who are taking notes today, and certainly for my students, I like to do this. Um, how and why have white American Jews supported complied and benefit from systemic racism. Here's my thesis. The process of becoming American over time and place encouraged Jews to embrace the political and social culture around them. Regardless of time or place, that meant Jews benefit from a system of white supremacy that rewarded them with privileges not extended to people of color. While it is an important and heartwarming story Jews' disproportionate participation in social justice causes did not negate the influence of their whiteness in their impressive rise. Systemic racism doesn't demand an agreement, it simply exists. So my career thesis is that Jews tend to follow the political culture of the society around them, no matter the time or the place. And what I'm gonna do is take that thesis and apply it uh, to race. So here's, here's the argument. Becoming American. In American Jewish history, no matter where the Jewish folks immigrated to or from or when, I argue that everyone tried to become American. And some of the ones, you know, perhaps in our families, they learned English. Our ancestors changed their religious practice. There are a lot of cases of name changing to become American. And one more thing that we did was racism. So here's the story of this talk. Um, shortly after the murder of George Floyd, I got a phone call from Ari Katz, who runs um, a Jewish educational center in Orange County, California, where, I, where I'd spent a month teaching. And he said, you know, we, we need a talk. We, we need a talk that's going to get right to the heart of racism in American Jewish history. Since my community knows you and trusts you, we'd like you to do it. And I thought, wow, first of all, I didn't imagine getting a lecture like this requested, um, which was just very exciting. And uh, so I agreed. And he said, great, you have four days. <laughs> You're on Wednesday at noon. Um, 
So what I decided to do to, to put it together is I took a book that um, Rabbi Gary Zola and I co-edited. This is a, a, a book full of historical documents in American Jewish history. And I simply opened to chapter one and looked for documents related to race and racism. And I photocopied and made this PowerPoint and highlighted uh, pieces of them. And what we're gonna do is in the, in the minutes we have, walk through as many of these documents as we can um, as we learn about the history of Jews and race. All right, so this is uh, the first slide. This is, um, th this is actually from Brazil. This is Recife, Brazil in the 17th century in the 1600s. This is the town where the first permanent settlement of American Jews came. So what did it mean to become American in the colonial period? How would Jewish immigrants act in their new surroundings? When and where would racism intersect with Judaism? So to give some background, um, and by 1776, the first day of the new nation, uh, scholars estimate between 2,500 and 5,000 Jews, which is not a large population, almost all were Sephardic. And while um, Jews certainly lived in you know, New York and Boston and Philadelphia, as we might imagine, the population centers were actually also in places like Charleston, Newport, and Savannah. And that's because these were port communities and Jews were making a living in trade and commerce. So here's our first moment. It happened in 1713. Um, the colonial governor of New York uh, put an embargo of goods to Jamaica. And if you were a Jewish merchant and um, you were trying to get your goods to Jamaica and you couldn't because of the embargo, what do you do? So what you see on the screen um, is a letter from a Jewish merchant to the colonial governor to basically say, please, can I have an exception to the embargo so that I can make a living? This is actually a setup. This is not actually the document because I think it's pretty easy if you're sending dry goods to Jamaica. Um, but uh, what if that wasn't the cargo? What if the cargo were Africans from West Africa to North America? If that's the case, what's the Jewish thing to do? What's the American thing to do? What's the right thing to do? I guess we can ask ourselves, what would we do if we were in this case? Well, I'd like to think that we would be anti-slavery and we would refuse, except uh, slavery was the law of the land. Depending on when you went to school, you may have learned about the triangle trade route in the Atlantic, which was dependent upon slavery. The entire shipping industry, which supported so much of the American Jewish community, relied also on the transport of Africans into slavery. So becoming American meant doing your job. And here it is, 1762. This is a letter from a Jewish merchant to the captain of a ship, which he was commissioning to set sail. And um, I'll read a piece of it and you'll see it on the screen in the, in the yellow if you wanna follow along. So he asked to the captain, that you embrace the first fair wind and proceed to sea and make the best of your way to the windward part of the coast of Africa. And at your arrival there, dispose of your cargo for the most possible can be gotten and invest in neat proceeds into as many good, merchantable, young slaves as you can and make all the dispatch you possibly can. I want to start by saying that um, the Nation of Islam has published a book that says that the Jews uh, controlled the slave trade, that the Jews were disproportionately involved in the slave trade. Both of the, the book and both of those claims are anti-Semitic. Um, and I just want to, want to put that out at the very beginning. And also say, by the way, Eli Faber um, wrote an entire book debunking that. So if you're interested, send me an email. I'm happy to give you, give you the link on that. That said, if if we look at it in terms of individuals, there were individual Jews um, who were engaged in this. And as Jews, they had a decision to make on what it meant for them to be Jewish and American um, at the same time. So I think it's important to see that in the colonial period, the community's financial success was built on this um, and that it was part of the system. And um, here's one more thing. If you look closely at this document in the lower right-hand corner, you'll see that this ship was actually heading for Newport, Rhode Island. It was going to the north. 
So you can't even blame this uh, on the South um, in a regional, uh, as a regional issue. Professor, can I ask a, a quick question? Please. So yes, so I, I've, I, I've heard what you said already that it, it's an anti-Semitic claim, the claim that Jews were at the center of, of the slave trade, um, or, and even to claim that Jews were worse than the average slave owner or American. Um, but is it, is it a Jewish exceptionalist claim to claim that Jews were actually better than the average American, or were we largely assimilated into, into the same culture? Okay, thank you. Excellent question. And, and my answer, um, which you'll find unsatisfying, is both and. Okay. Uh, and this is the way historiography works. Most of the historical literature has looked at the part where Jews, let's talk about white Jews now, actually, in, in the Deep South, and we'll learn more about this as we go on, um, were more and better on social justice than white Christians. And that is true. And it also happens that white Southerners and white Northerners were, by the three definitions of racism, either overt, complicit, or benefit, also a part of the system. I think, and, and you've just identified what I think is the biggest challenge for, for white American Jews in the 21st century, which is how can we hold that we are victims of oppression at the same time that we're a part of that very system? Uh, and and I, I think all I can say is now we just need to hold all of it as true um, and see that one does not deny the other. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to give a, a, a trigger warning. The next document is going to have the N-word. I, of course, am not going to say it, uh, but you are going to see it on the screen. Um, this is a letter also from 1762. Um, they're actually two Jewish cousins, uh, even though they have a different last name. Uh, and, uh, and, and here's a, a piece of their personal correspondence. If you come here for the coming Sabbath, Nachmu, it would please me very much because we're presently very lonesome on the Sabbath. I also inform you that I may again sell my N-word wench at a profit. So if a ship with N-words should arrive or a ship with indentured Germans, you will let me know because I cannot manage without a servant. The wench I now have has two virtues, both bad ones. First, she's drunk all day when she can get it. And second, she's mean so that my wife cannot say a word to her. She's afraid of her. How did all this happen? A free N-word here wants to court her and to buy her from me. I don't want to give her away for less than 110 pounds with her bastard because I bought the bastard too. Sign your affectionate friend, the humble Meir, son of Joseph. Okay, wow. <laughs> you know, so the first thing I want to say is that this is, a, this is just a letter. So, so there was no intention here, right, to be provocative. And I don't think that, that these cousins knew that a couple centuries later, it was going to show up on a Zoom call <laughs> across the country, right, in a social justice class. Um, and it incorporates Jewishness, right? We've got the Parsha at the beginning. We've got lonesomeness on Shabbat. We've got, we want them, you know, we, we want our, our, our friends and our relatives to visit us. Um, and then that closing at the very end, your affectionate friend, the humble Meir, son of Yosef, from Yever, scholar of blessed memory. Um, I think this letter sort of shows the way in which um, slavery and racism was normalized. Um, uh, among even the leading um, white Jews of the South. Uh, so now we'll move to the early national period, um, which is basically the Declaration of Independence, you know, through, through Jacksonian America. Um, in 1776, we had a promise, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to everyone. About a dozen years later, the Constitution was ratified to try to pro uh, translate those promises into law. As I'm sure we are aware, even with that, it only applied really to white, landed, literate men. And it turns out there were Jewish men in the early Republic who were just that. And as soon as that is true, we have complicity in a racist system at the least. So here's a document from 1809. It's the last will and testament of Samuel Jones. So um, I will um, read a piece of it here. After my funeral expenses and my lawful debts are paid, if I should not emancipate my Negro woman, Jenny, and her son, Emmanuel, during my lifetime, it is my desire that my executors do emancipate my Negro woman, Jenny, and her son, Emmanuel, and give to Jenny my bedsheets, bedstead, blankets, tables, pots, plates, chairs, looking glass. To my Negro woman, Jenny, $200. To Jenny, I leave of the income of leases of $100 a year, 
to be paid to her quarterly. It's my further desire not to drive Jenny and her children out of my house in King Street until they have time to procure a place for their abode. So if you look through the whole document, you would learn that Jenny is getting more money than any other organization or any other person. You're seeing here that Jenny's son, Emmanuel, is also getting money. What I found most curious is Jenny is getting his bedsheets. Why would he give Jenny his bedsheets? And as you can see in the upper left, if you're reading, uh, scholars um, who have studied this have determined um, that Samuel Jones was Emmanuel's father. Jenny, in slavery, cannot consent to sexual relations. This was rape. Today, we know it's wrong for men in the workplace to have sexual relationships with subordinates. If there's a power differential, there's a problem. This was slavery. Jenny was not a citizen. She wasn't a person according to the law. This was not romantic love. If this was love, Samuel would have freed her. He didn't. If it was love, then Samuel would have moved with his family, I don't know, to the north, maybe homesteaded to the Midwest, go to the Caribbean, go to Europe, right? Go anywhere where a, a mixed racial family could exist. Um, and he didn't do that. While we think being Jewish makes us different, I argue that in America, we tend to be more the same than we like to think. Becoming American encourages us to copy those who are around us. And now I'm gonna ask um, an offensive question, but I'm doing it for a point. What's wrong with raping an African-American woman you own in slavery? That question can only be asked if we know also that Thomas Jefferson himself fathered multiple children with Sally Hemings. She could not consent. He was the one who wrote the Declaration of Independence. We know that George Washington owned slaves too. If our founding fathers, our nation's quintessential Americans owned slaves, who could expect American Jews to call them out or to act differently? Let's go to the Civil War. All right, <laughs> we've been at this long enough, you probably know where all this is going, but let's just say slavery is wrong and it's un-Jewish. That in Judaism, we believe in tikkun olam, my two favorite words in the English language. Our rabbis take strong social justice positions sometimes taking dissent from members of their own congregations. So let's take a look at a sermon by Rabbi Morris Rafal. And this sermon is called The Bible View of Slavery, a Discourse, and I'll read just a part of it. You and I may regret that in his anger, Noah should from beneath the waters of wrath again have fished up the idea and practice of slavery, but that he did so is a fact which rests on the authority of scripture. I arrive at the conclusion that next to the domestic relations between husband and wife, parents and children, the oldest relation of society with which we are acquainted is that of master and slave. When you remember that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, the men with whom the Almighty conversed, all these men were slaveholders, does it not strike you that you're guilty of something very little short of blasphemy? My friends, I find, and I'm sorry to find, that I'm delivering a pro-slavery discourse. I am no friend to slavery in the abstract and still less friendly to the practical workings of slavery. But I stand here as a teacher in Israel, not to place before you my own feelings and opinions, but to propound to you the word of God, the Bible view of slavery. The result to which the Bible view of slavery leads us is first, that slavery has existed since the earliest time. Two, that slaveholding is no sin and that slave property is expressly placed under the protection of the Ten Commandments. All right, so if you look at the top of the screen, you'll notice there's a little bit of brownout there. And I did that on purpose because that shows the name of the congregation where this rabbi came from. So I'll reveal it now. It's Congregation B'nai Jeshuin in New York City in Manhattan. 
Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm getting some good appropriate reactions. Thank you very much, Sarah, because uh, B'nai Jeshua now is really one of the more progressive synagogues in the country. And, um, you know, all over all over the country, if you're doing like strategic planning, you'll put members of your strategic planning committee on a plane to New York so they can go see what B'nai Jeshua is doing. Um, so this wasn't a regional thing. Um, here we have a Northern rabbi on the eve of the Civil War um, making this particular case. Now we'll move to the Midwest. Rabbi Isaac Meir Weiss, um, I think is arguably the most influential rabbi of his generation, uh, one of the founders of the reform movement in American Judaism, uh, the Hebrew Union, what became Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He lived in Cincinnati, and there in Cincinnati, he actually had his own newspaper. Um, this is from 1867. After the Civil War ended, he went to Richmond with his um, personal diary, and he um, took notes in the diary, and then he got back to Cincinnati, and then he translated those notes into an article in his newspaper. And I'll read to you a piece um, of the article from his diary. As inevitable as fate, the 11 Southern states are to belong to the Negroes. The enfranchisement of the Negro and the disenfranchisement of so many white men places the destiny of those states entirely in the hands of the Negro. The next consequence will be that as many white men as will possibly be able to sell out will go to the North. This again is as inevitable as fate, for the Southern man will not commit to Negro rule one minute longer than he must. The longevity and prolification of the Negro in that climate gives him a natural advantage over the white race and must in time press it from those states. The next consequence of the emigration of the white will be a new immigration of Negroes from Africa. 11 Negro legislatures, the representatives of 11 states in Congress, the thinly populated country, the want of labor, the better climate than the African, the good government and rich country, take all these circumstances together. And you cannot deny that the Southern states in the course of 25 years will be a new Africa. The South, will never be what it was. Her cotton trade is ruined. The white people will leave as fast as they can. That is the end of it. Turns out becoming American extends even to the highest standing clergy. For Rabbi Isaac Muir Weiss, freedom for the former slaves, reconstruction, the future of race relations in America, um, conflicted <laughs> with what it was that he wanted to see this country become. Now we'll move to the Industrial Revolution, late, late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, even though, we'll go back here, even though uh, Reconstruction ended in 1877, and as we've been learning the last few years, a lot more, systemic racism continued. It just did it in different forms. Sharecropping replaced slavery. Lynchings maintained the terror of slave times. Poverty crimes invalidated the 13th Amendment and led to what we now know as mass incarceration. While we typically think of this as Southern and not Northern, as non-Jewish rather than Jewish, the institutionalization of racism knew no such boundaries. And for this, we'll go to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York City, um, best known or, or sadly worst known as the site of that horrific 1911 fire that killed 146 people, mostly Jewish women laborers. We typically learn about this as a labor story. Unsafe working conditions led to the fire. A lack of exits led to the deaths. It was all built on a capitalist system that preyed on new immigrants who needed the work. Jews, we learned, were leaders of the union movement that helped. All good, right? Well, um, not so much, actually. Um, in Triangle Shirtwaist, we know it was a class problem because it was about rich factory workers and poor immigrant workers. We knew it was a gender problem because Jewish women faced the worst of the working conditions. But it was also a systemic racism problem. And that is that they used cotton to sew in all of the New York City factories. The cotton came from the South. The white landowners who sold the cotton, got it by exploiting black sharecropping farmers. 
the Northern economy could not operate without relying on a racist Southern economy. And here's another complication. Um, in the late 19th century, there were 241 um, factories, textile factories in New York cities. Of those 241, 234, basically almost everyone, was owned by German-speaking Central European Jews. So the management in the labor management split was also Jewish. This was in fact a Jewish versus Jewish situation. This is what becoming American meant at the turn of the, turn of the century in New York City. It's certainly not what I remember growing up and learning. This is historical memory. We erased the inter-Jewish part of the story. We erased the sharecropping economic racism part of the story and then reinvented it as a story of Jews leading the labor union movement. And um, we'll go to the New Deal now, Frank, President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1930s. And um, in the interest of time, I'll, I'm gonna move quickly through this. Um, Isaac Rubinow, a Russian born um, Jewish economist who made his way to um, Columbia and was one of the authors of the Social Security Act in 1930, um, said to the um, National Council of Jewish Social Workers um, that the promise of American Jews to take care of one another, that which was made to Peter Stuyvesant in 1654, no longer applied in the midst of the Great Depression, that we needed um, local, state, and federal government aid to get us through a difficult time. And uh, here um, is some data from Jewish welfare agencies. And if you'll notice um, in 1929, that's the baseline. Almost $2 million was um, sent to sort of help Jewish people. Um, by 1933, you know, the worst of the Great Depression, we needed double the money. But if you look in 1934 and 1935, it's reducing again. And that's because the federal government stepped in in 1933 and started um, giving relief to Jewish organizations so that American Jews could benefit. Absolutely nothing wrong with having the federal government in the midst of the worst depression ever support you, except if you were black. Because the way FDR made the New Deal work is he gave basically blank checks to local politicians. And um, by the way, if you give a politician a check with strings attached, they're not gonna like you. But if you give a politician a check and say, spend as you wish, they're gonna love you and they're gonna reelect you. And FDR, of course, won four terms in the White House. Well, if you give a bunch of New Deal money to the power structure of the American South, you're giving it to white men and they are not going to distribute it equally on racial grounds. So through the 1930s, even as American Jews got what they deserved as citizens, they were also receiving a disproportionate share um, relative to African-Americans in the South. Now we'll move to post-war America. Um, and in fact, I'm gonna skip over Levittown. I'm gonna to go to this. It's hard to have a favorite slide in a, on, on something like this, but um, this image uh, I, I find quite compelling. Um, it's from something called a film strip, which I do remember from my youth, depending on how old you are, you may or not remember film strips. Uh, 1954 was the 300th anniversary of American Jewish life. And um, the reform movement, then the UAHC, now known as the URJ, created this. And if you look at this image, um, we have at the very front, the pilgrim. This one looks like maybe that's Thomas Jefferson. If you go one more back, that may be Davy Crockett. Um, maybe that's Abraham Lincoln. And somewhere back here are American Jews. Um, this is pretty fantastic. Forget that American Jews came with Eastern European Jews at the turn of the 20th century. Forget the mid 19th century with German speaking Jews or even the Sephardic Jews of the colonial period. According to this image, Jews trace their Americanness back to the pilgrims. We are part of the line. Jews are definitely white. Jews are definitely um, really American and fully integrated. Except you could probably imagine African-Americans could not have this film strip on the 300th or sadly even the 400th anniversary of their arrival on American shores. And certainly black Jews for sure and other Jews of color do not fit um, into this. So I think this is a visual representation um, of what becoming American means in terms of becoming part of a system and a culture that privileges um, whites. All right, so 
here's a quote, and this is a test for the, those who've been to law school. Um, um, first, I'll read it, and then, and then I'll, I'll dissect it. A segregated system is not merely an unfair system, but it is a wasteful and inefficient system. Nevertheless, we do not believe that a federal law to equalize educational opportunities by public subsidy should be used as a means to attack the segregated school system. So long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems do not discriminate financially against children in the minority schools, we believe the bill should be supported. So here's what happened. Um, after World War II, the federal government determined that it needed to give money to public education as part of the Cold War to try to fight the communists. Um, the US Constitution says that education belongs to state governments, not federal governments. So this is testimony to the United States Senate Subcommittee on Education. And my question for you would be, who is giving this testimony? Um, when the testimony says, we do not believe a federal law to equalize educational opportunities by public subsidy should be used as a means to attack the segregated school system. So um, uh, in 1954, the United States Supreme Court um, um, passed the Brown versus Board of Education decision. I've just opened my chat so I can see. So feel free to type in the chat if you wanna give an answer. What was the name of the Supreme Court case that Brown overturned? And if you went to law school, you may know that right away. Um, did anyone know um, the, the, the court decision that Brown overturned? All right, Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. And here's how Plessy worked. Plessy wasn't about education. It was about actually railroad cars that crossed state lines. And in the Plessy case, the Supreme Court ruled that if you gave equal money to the black passenger car than you gave to the white passenger car, it was constitutional. In other words, separate but equal was okay. So this testimony says... So long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems do not discriminate financially, we believe the bill should be supported. This is using the Plessy argument to defend Jim Crow segregation, funding schools in the South. Who said it? And we're 36 minutes in, so you probably could, probably could guess the kind of person who could say it. Of course, it's supposed to be a white Southern senator, bigot, racist, who would say something like this. Um, and, and, and here's his picture. Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, New York Free Synagogue, 1947. Oh no, how could it be? Here's the backstory. When the US Congress and the Senate were gonna pass stronger public education, Stephen S. Wise said, of course, he got on a train from, from New York, went down to DC and gave his testimony. That's a good rabbinic position to take. When he finished his testimony, the Southern white senators pulled him aside and said, Rabbi, <laughs> you know what happens when the federal government starts sending money to the South? They're gonna start having strings attached and they're going to try to make changes in the racial status quo. So here's the deal, Rabbi. We're gonna add an amendment to the bill. And the amendment's going to say, if you send the money, you can't touch race. And by the way, Rabbi, if that amendment doesn't pass, this bill never leaves committee. No one gets any money unless the amendment passes. And we need you to walk back into that room and support the amendment. What are you going to do? Wow. Here's a moment. He didn't go there to talk about race. He went there to talk about public education. Yet he walks in, and, and now let's reread it. He says, a segregated system is not merely an unfair system, but it is wasteful and inefficient. This is his way of going on record against Jim Crow. And then he sells out. I mean, and then he um, has his transition. Nevertheless, we do not believe a federal law to equalize education opportunities by public subsidies should be used as a means to attack segregated school systems. And then he wants equal money. What do you do when you're a rabbi, when you're a social justice leader, and you can't always get what you want? Is he going to deny all children all the money because some of the children can't get some now? This is, I think, the classic sort of Biden versus Bernie debate, 
where Bernie's like, we're going for all of it because that's what we need. And Biden's like, if you don't move gradually and slowly, you're not going to get anything. And I think then you could just self-reflect on your own social justice activist mindset on where you land, you know, in between um, those two. And now I want to say this position is privileged, white privileged, and I think also male privileged. And just for, for a test, let's just put Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. here. Now, he was only 18 years old in 1947, but I think even at 18, you know, would he have taken the deal? There's no way he would have taken the deal. This amendment codifies Jim Crow at the federal level. His job was to undo Jim Crow. And I think it's important to see a white male national leading rabbi is able to engage in what's called gradualism, which is moving slowly towards a social justice end because you know he wasn't the black youth in the South that were going to suffer as a consequence. And I also wanna point out 1947 because um, I got this actually in my research for my first book. Most people start looking at Jews and civil rights in 1954 when the movement you know, gains national notoriety. I moved back decades in time because I wanted to see what Jewish leaders were doing and saying when no one was looking. Um, so we can critique Stephen S. Weitz for, for, for this complicity in racism, and we can also fully understand that he's trying to do the best he can do in the moment that he's in. And I think it's you know good in terms of the contemporary scene for everyone just to kind of hold on to that. Um, I might have given this quote um, when I came to Arizona, if, if folks were also there. Um, Rabbi Richard Winogrand, conservative movement rabbi, was at the uh, rabbi convention in 1963, um, which was going to conflict with a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, march in Birmingham. So he and about a dozen of the rabbis actually leave the conference early, hop on a plane, head down to Birmingham to march. And when they get there, they're met by racist, bigoted Southern Jews at the airport holding signs that say, Yankee, go home. What do you do if you're a rabbi fighting for racial justice and the local community um, is turning you away? My expectation was that he was going to give him a really good lecture. Zedek, Zedek, Turdov, justice, justice, you shall pursue. Instead, he said, from a moral point of view, the scales were very even. I was not fully convinced, if you see in the lower left, that we had a right to place the Jewish community of Birmingham in a more dangerous position than we're willing and able to place ourselves. In weighing the morality of this particular aspect, the scales were very even. I'll let you know that I read, I read this sentence you know, on, on, for my dissertation. That sentence has guided my entire career. How could a Northern rabbi who, who's leaving his convention to march with Dr. King have empathy for white Jewish racists? Because he knew that becoming American means that he became American in Chicago. And these folks, his co-religionists became American in Alabama. And that's gonna mean a difference. In fact, um, on the upper right-hand corner, I didn't highlight it, but he said he felt ashamed of himself as a rabbi for having put them in this position, but most ashamed as you can read for the circumstances which had led to pitting Jew against Jew. The job of a rabbi is to bring Jewish communities together. This rabbi exacerbated tensions between Northern and Southern um, uh, Jews, and he had to, to, work, to work it out. Um, I'm not gonna read it, um, but this is a page from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And I just encourage you to, to go reread the letter. And that's because the clergy of Birmingham, including the local rabbi who was pro-civil rights actually, took out a full page ad um, to Dr. King saying, look, we support your movement, but do us a favor you know, and slow your pace. This is getting too confrontational. And he was so mad um, at this lack of support from clergy that he asked his aide to give him paper and pen. And this, you can literally see the path that the aide gave him. And he just started writing. Um, so the letter from a Birmingham jail is actually a critique in our case of white Jewish liberals um, and the idea that liberalism is trying to not actually bring the kind of racial justice um, that, uh, that he would like to see. So let me bring it to the uh, contemporary period here. A moment to catch up with myself. 
Um, in the 60 years since the civil rights movement ended, we've seen how systemic racism operates in our own lives and without us having to do a thing. In the North, we have whites only neighborhoods, even though we never had a history of Jim Crow laws. We have segregated schools because school enrollments follow the racial composition of our neighborhoods. And even as none of these Northern segregated schools are considered a challenge to the Brown decision, because typically we only see that as a Southern issue. When public school districts did integrate, sometimes with mandated busing programs, Jewish parents pulled their children from the school. Since they had the ability to pay, they went to local private schools. But other times they created Jewish community day schools where half the parents wanted as little Jewish as they could get to stay out of public schools. And the other half of course wanted all the Jewish they could get because that's, they that's because they were at um, a, Jewish, uh, a Jewish institution. So um, today it's centering a lot on the Black, uh, Black Lives Matter movement. But there's a lot of concern by many white Jews um, because they hear anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, and also at times anti-Semitic uh, statements uh, coming from um, some in the Black Lives Matter movement. There are 200 words in a 40,000 word platform in the movement for Black Lives, um, which is certainly anti-Zionist, if not anti-Semitic. So um, here, what I would urge is that um, we take pause um, look at the big picture, uh, think about the goals, um, self-reflect, of course, on our own community. And now I'm referring now to the white Jewish community around uh, racism, as we also understand um, that anti-Semitism um, is plaguing all sorts of people across all sorts of lines. Um, but I really wanna focus on Jews of color uh, and to say that this is a really good place uh, for us to start at least an organized Jewish life. Um, so many synagogues, JCCs are already um, hard at work um, in, uh, in working on the systemic racism that's existing um, in each of their organizations, then I just wanna offer, and, and I know that I got a self-selected crowd here, but that said, um, at least what I have been learning um, in, in, in my own self-education over the last few years, um, what often happens in Jewish communal spaces. Um, the first I'll call um, the Jewish test. Um, and for white Jews, it could be a simple curiosity to ask a Jew of color who shows up to tell us the story of how and why they're Jewish. Um, I'm told uh, it might be a curiosity the first, second, or third time you hear it, but after the 50th or 60th time you hear it, everywhere you go, it's, uh, it, it just gets to be racist and exoticizing. The token. This is where we give uh, special attention to Jews of color because uh, we want everyone to know how warm and inclusive we are. And we do this by finding the single Jew of color and putting them on all the publicity and the photographs we have to advertise. We invite them onto a committee or onto a board. And while it's very well-intentioned, um, of course, unless the white Jewish board is actually itself committed to bringing change, um, then it's really um, doomed, doomed to fail. Uh, the help. Could I have a second helping of Shabbat dinner, please? Here's my trash. Would you put it in the trash can? The number of times Jews of colors endure um, being mistaken for the help um, is awful. The name tag, this actually happened at the last uh, URJ biennial. A Jew of color went to get her name tag. Um, the name was very Jewish sounding. And the name tag even had a banner on it that said keynote speaker. But she couldn't get the name tag because the person behind the desk said that the actual person had to come get the name tag. And she said, I am the actual person. <laughs> and when it broke on social media, of course, um, it caused, as it should have, a, a national uh, attention um, to, to what Jews look like and what their names are. Security. Especially after recent violence uh, against Jews, we have increased security, even armed guards in many of our places. Yet we know that people of color face increased risk around police and even more so private security guards who, who don't have the training um, that regular police do. On the most obvious level, how can our Jewish spaces be more welcoming if Jews of color have to navigate the fear of police violence every time they want to come and pray? On a more subtle level, what assumptions do we have as white Jews to institute these kinds of security protocols without thinking about unintended consequences? Um, and I wanna say, that it's actually not just Jews of color who suffer, it's white Jews suffer too, because we, we miss the diversity 
we miss the enrichment. We, we miss all um, that, we, that we actually are. So I want to end on an achemta, on a, on a hopeful note, uh, especially after, you know, after, after this. Um, the moment we have now is giving us an opportunity for a new approach to racial justice. By seeing what has been invisible to us in American Jewish history, we can begin to see what's been vivid for Black Americans and other communities of color. By letting go of our closely guarded version of American Jewish history, we can begin to see another side of our social mobility, the unintended negative consequences of our success. That knowledge, that consciousness is where we need to be to start the process of dismantling a system that's given social and economic supremacy to white Jews over communities of color. And with this in the best possible way, we can prove Dr. King's upset about Jewish moderates in his letter from a Birmingham jail. We can prove that wrong while we prove his vision of a, of a diverse America absolutely right. So I wanna thank you for uh, receiving this, for your time and your patience and your reflection. And I'm um, happy to entertain thoughts or questions. Amazing, amazing. So thank you so much. This has been so thought provoking. Um, so our first question uh, um, uh, is in the chat, if you wanna take a glance there. And if anybody wants to unmute themselves and ask a question as well. Yeah, so um, because, because we want to um, respect your time with an hour, I didn't talk about Levittown. Levittown, of course, was uh, a series of um, suburban um, communities created by a Jewish builder, Levitt, uh, and they were racially exclusive. And in the 1950s, when Jewish organizations moved to the white suburbs, they tended to follow the racial exclusion of the larger white communities they joined. The Anti-Defamation League in 1951 did a survey of JCCs. Half would not admit non-Jews anyway, so it's hard to tell, and assuming that we're not Jews of color in 1951 testing it, those half that did admit non-Jews were racially exclusive. So we're just showing how becoming American when you finally get your house in the suburbs means copying the racial status quo. Great, Professor, we have a question from Linda in the chat also. Uh, Linda asked about the Baki case and affirmative action. Um, the, the Baki case was famous or infamous. Uh, UC Davis uh, um, case where a white applicant with a higher GPA was uh, not admitted uh, into graduate school than um, an applicant of color. Um, and uh, it split the American Jewish community and, and really brought to the fore the notion of affirmative action. Um, and, and what I'll say here is that most national Jewish organizations supported affirmative action. They did not support quotas, and that was the split. Uh, and um, that's because quotas in the 1920s were hor horrifically anti-Semitic. So when quotas came back in the 60s, uh, Jews opposed them. But I want to give you this little bit. I think this is probably the most, maybe the most important part of today. In the 1920s, quotas were used in order to keep white people in power and communities of color out of power. Jews were not considered white in the 1920s. White Jews were not considered white. And therefore, we suffered from quotas. But in the 60s, they flipped it. Quotas were now meant to bring communities of color into power and to break up the white monopoly on power. So um, if you were a, like a white Christian, you loved quotas in the 20s, you hated them in the 60s. If you're a black Christian, you hated them in the 20s, you loved them in the 60s. <clears throat> I think Jews are the only group that hated them both times because Jews went from being on the margins to being in the mainstream between the 20s and the 60s. I think Sarah has, has a hand up. Hi, Sarah. Hi, uh, thank, you. thank you so much. Um, so many of the conversations I've been part of, are you picked this up from post-World War II and um, so it's very enlightening, but I do have a post-world, I do have a civil rights era, post-civil rights era question, which, which has to do with, um, if you could shed some light on um, the, the cracks that, that broke open the, the relationship between the blacks and Jews, Jewish community that where we had been able to work together so closely during, during those years. Thank you, Sarah, for a three hour question that I'll do in, um, three to six minutes. Um, that's actually the subject of my mo most recent book on black power Jewish politics. And I argue that the alliance was always weak and fractured 
due to systemic racism and the inherent differences between white Jews and blacks, that the public line was that, um, that white Jews and blacks are natural allies. Um, and what I found doing my research, and I was actually shocked, and I ended up, I, was, I started writing a different book, and then I, I started reading the archives. Middle-aged white Jewish men who ran national Jewish organizations were writing publicly that there were inherent differences between being white and Jewish and being black in America, and that this inherent difference is going to lead to uh, anti-Semitism by blacks and racism by Jews, that this alliance is doomed to failure. Um, uh, one of the quotes is from 1960. Um, I have one by Spingarn, the founder of the NAACP from 1914, where he is basically predicting the demise. Um, so in one sense, what this is doing is undermining our historical memory. Um, and uh, I'll throw this out. The three reasons why most argue that uh, white Jews and blacks got together was a common history, a common sociological experience, and Judaism as a prophetic religion. History. American Jewish history and African American history could not be more different. The experience of white Jews in America is rapid social mobility, blacks is slavery and its implications. Um, or as one of my African-American colleagues says, who was former head of the Black Jewish Alliance in New Jersey, who says, what does it mean if you're a black man and you get invited and you're the co-chair? He says, you get invited to a lot of Passover seders. He said, if I have another white man, tell me he knows what it's like to be black in America because he too was a slave in the land of Egypt. He's gonna scream, you know? Um, sociology, which is Jews white Jews know what it is to be marginalized. As um, Eric Goldstein argued in his book, The Price of Whiteness, um, the Civil Rights Alliance doesn't start till the 50s. The 50s is a time that Jews achieved whiteness. If the sociology argument would work, and by the way, Jews were involved um, pre-World War II, Hasia Diner has a great book on it, um, but in terms of sort of the mass mobilization, it can't happen until Jews achieve racial status. And um, I'm just loving, um, Rabbi, this group, because you were gonna be the contradiction to my thesis. Um, very few Orthodox Jews were involved. One, one rabbi that, that's well-known, conservative movement, of course, Heschel, but of the denominations, the reform movement was most, but to be honest with you, most of the Jews who went down were not going down with religious denominations at all. They were going down with secular groups. Um, since I'm tenured, I know you're recording this, but I don't care. There were Jewish socialists and communists too, and they were actually denying religion as the cause for why they were there. Um, so, once you've undermined the three, the three rationales for the alliance, it's time for um, a reinventing of what was actually happening in a, in a more subtle way. And I ultimately argue, and this is true for all, all peoples, we all tend to remember what we want to remember in the ways that we like to, which tends to be more self-serving. And we tend to lose kind of the subtlety um, of, of what's, what's actually there, but maybe more concerning. Uh, if there's one final quick question, we can take that. I'm giving myself credit for the Evelyn Wood um, speed answering uh, here. I'll go ahead and, and, and take, take the last question. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Mark. I, from, from your class here and that I was lucky enough to participate in, in Phoenix to this class today, um, my question is, what can we pull from history to teach us now on how to be better uh, allies to the Black community to ensure that injustices don't happen? Yeah, um, thank you. So, and, and I'll speak now to, to white Jews for whom I think this is probably more profound. Pause. Start there. <laughs> and I'll just reflect my maleness to speak to my fellow men. Don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to solve it. Um, listen, learn. And then when it comes time to acting, I, I think for me, my best advice, because uh, if, if we're in a profession, chances are a profession has places already set up that are working this. If we have hobbies or affinity groups or other interests, those places probably do as well. Um, and we're probably passionate about that already because in our lives we've gravitated there. I'm an educator, so I, so I pick this. I pick teaching all these classes on Zoom as, as, my, as my way to do it. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, my definition of an historical hero is someone who risks power and privilege for the benefit of another. 
And uh, ultimately, there, there has to be action. And I, I think both you and the rabbi are just living those lives. And I follow you both on Facebook and what you're doing. And it's awe-inspiring, um, which is um, there's a, not a whole lot of people willing to risk their power or their privilege to help someone else. And the moment that's done, that's, that's allyship and that's, and that's constant. Um, I, I'll, I'll just to close here, I'll quote, um, when I gave a talk at Loyola Marymount University on the Black Power book and the chair of Black Studies um, was invited to give commentary and someone talked, to, a white person talked about checking their privilege at the door kind of thing. And he said, no. Nah. He says, if I ever get power and privilege, I'm not checking it at the door. <laughs> You're crazy to check it at the door. But how about this? Open up power and privilege. Let others in. Figure out ways in which we exist in that structure and ways in which we can then open it up to others. So I'll close with that. Thank you so much, Professor Mark Dollinger. This has been so fascinating, inspiring, and challenging. And thank you all for participating in these hard, sometimes uncomfortable conversations um, and learning that is so crucial uh, about our history and about today and about our future. So thank you. And, and we look forward to continuing to learn with you. Have a wonderful day. Take care.